Today's Swallow Your Pride guest is Nanette Crawford. Nanette is a speech pathologist with over 45 years of experience who wears many, many hats and wears all of them very, very well. Her specialty is cognition, brain injury, and post-concussive symptoms. Um, She works in an outpatient clinic where she also treats patients with dysphagia. Knowing that she did not have a solid background in dysphagia, Nanette took it upon herself to enroll in Dr. Jim Coyle's dysphagia class at the University of Pittsburgh a few years back. Nanette is extremely passionate about patients' rights and ethics and has also been educated by Dr. Paula Leslie, who has written extensively about this topic. She brings an entire human element to treating our patients with dysphagia, and I could only hope that if myself or a family member was struggling with dysphagia, that they would be treated by an SLP that believes in and supports patients' rights as much as Nanette does. In this episode, we'll cover the ever-popular topic of waivers, why they should or should not be used, how to present treatment options to our patients, and how to advocate for our patients as part of an interdisciplinary team. Nanette also discusses the importance of having mentors and support from others in the field and how you are never too old to learn new tricks. Uh, Nanette references a lot of great papers in this episode and a lot of different ASHA Leader articles, and you can find all of those over in the show notes at swallowyourpridepodcast.com. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll get right into the podcast in just a minute. But, you know, the whole point of doing this podcast is to be able to bring you some extremely valuable information that doesn't cost you a darn thing that you can just mindlessly listen to on your commute or while you're at the gym or making dinner. But some of you also might realize that you do want more information and you would like to get CEUs for it. So I've partnered with MedBridge for the entire month of September to bring you an amazing deal on their membership CEU packages. So I know it's getting towards the end of the year. You're like, oh crap, I need to catch up. I need to get some CEUs. We've got you covered. So I know there's a few different membership sites out there. Why did I decide to partner with MedBridge? No brainer. They have so many great resources all in one spot. There's webinars and lectures from Dr. Yanessa Humbert, Dr. Kate Hutchison, Dr. Katrina Steele, Dr. Marty Brodsky, Dr. Stephanie Daniels, Dr. Crary, Dr. Carnaby, Dr. Grower, Dr. Arvidson on pediatric feeding and swallowing. So many awesome rock stars in our field. So whether you just need to brush up on the basics of swallowing physiology, or you want to learn more about dysphagia and acute care or stroke or more about video fluoroscopy or rehabilitation treatment techniques. Uh, I could go on. You get the point. But you have access to all of these with a MedBridge membership. So the regular price for this membership is $320. But MedBridge has sweetened the deal for Swallow Your Pride listeners for the month of September. And they're upgrading everyone to their premium membership, which includes patient handouts and videos, a mobile app, live webinars, and more. So all of that for $95. bucks. So unlimited access to hundreds of CEUs for 95 bucks. So go to medbridgeeducation.com, click on speech language pathology, sign up for the SLP education plan and enter promo code SYP at checkout. 
So SYP for Swallow Your Pride. Enter promo code SYP and you'll be automatically upgraded to that premium membership, but only for the price of 95 bucks. So super steal. Get on that. Now we'll get on with the show. Hi, Nanette. Hi, Teresa. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this for me. Oh, well, thanks for asking. Yes. All right. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Okay. My name is Nanette Crawford, and I'm a speech pathologist in Erie, Pennsylvania. And I am presently employed at the LECOM Institute for Successful Aging, part of LECOM Health. And if you don't know what LECOM is, it's it's the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine that I'm affiliated with. And so I have been working for, uh, well, I hate to say this, for 45 years <laughs> in many different settings. So, Yeah, so tell us, so is it outpatient that you do? I am uh, primarily right now doing outpatient um, therapy and evaluations. I um, do hospital consults occasionally if the uh, hospital therapists are uh, really busy and need help and if I have time. And I do outpatient modified variant swallows over at the hospital, which is connected actually to our building. So you wear lots and lots of hats. Um, Yeah, more or less. And we do some... um, I do some lectures to medical students. I just had the opportunity to do one to dent for uh, dental students on the interprofessional team. And every month I do a lecture on uh, cognitive, communicative, and swallowing evaluation and a little bit of treatment for, uh, for third-year medical students on a geriatric rotation. Cool. Well, that's neat. Even though our office is Lecom Institute for Successful Aging, I um, do see younger adults, um, but our geriatricians see people 50 and over. Okay. But we have a neurologist, a cardiologist, a neuropsychologist, two geriatricians um, in our office. Cool. So. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty nice work setting. Yeah. So your your passion is kind of actually outside dysphagia, am I right? It's more in the cognitive communication realm. Right, it is. I, um, I my special area of interest is um, traumatic brain injury, concussion. Um, I also like aphasia, and I have several dementia patients uh, with whom I work as well. But all right. So I heard a rumor that maybe a few years back, you possibly went back and took Dr. Coyle's dysphagia course at Pitt. Is that correct? That is true. So it's not a rumor. It's a truth. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's the truth. So t- so tell us, you know, what made you do that? Well, I think that that was in the school year of 2011, 2012. So um, I had... Um, known Jim just a little bit from um, his presentations at PISHA at our state of convention. And I said, boy, I'd like to take uh, a class from you sometime. So he worked it out that I could um, register for his class as a special student at Pitt. And um, so that's what I did. And um, that was in 2011, I think I said, but I never really finished it till 2012. 
because I told him I could only do this stuff on weekends and so forth, you know, and, and so he said that was okay. So um, while everybody else was done with the course in December, I was done in May, but he did make me take the exam. Oh, good. <laughs> I said I wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> I'm sure. So did you, were you working with patients with dysphagia kind of prior to that? And what, you know, what made you take that course? Was it just, were you thinking, oh, you know, I really need to brush up on my skills or a lot of things have changed? Well, you know, I, um, I fell into that category of there was no dysphagia in school when I went to grad school. And so everything that I have learned from dysphagia up until that time was from continuing ed classes. And um, I did tons of continuing ed in dysphagia. And so, yeah, I have been treating dysphagia for a while. When I first did modified bearing swallows, it was when I worked in Ohio, but the radiologists were all Cleveland Clinic radiologists. And they were all skilled in that. So they really helped me. And then they sent me to Cleveland Clinic to meet the therapy staff there. So I learned how to do modified variant swallows and so forth. They sent me to a couple other places as well. And so I've been do- I have been doing dysphagia um, evaluation and treatment and so forth. But I just felt like I needed to know more. And so... Because I, I didn't always feel confident. I always didn't feel real comfortable. So that's when um, I asked Jim if I could do his class. And and he said yes. And I was I was really scared, to be honest. Because, you know, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, there is like a guru in his vega, and I'm taking yeah, his class. Yeah. You know. Did you learn anything? Well, yes, I did. And I have four whole binders of um of my notes and his handout and i had uh after the class was over i took a picture and i sent it to him as a joke because i go look i've organized everything from your class and they're all in sections and the binders even matched my printing and he laughed about that because um I said, you know, I did learn a lot and I keep those here at work. Yeah. I mean, if that was a real um, big change for me. Um, and so, you know, I, I've been working for 45 years. So when people say, are you going to retire soon? Because I'm past retirement age. I say, no, I'm just getting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible, Nana. That's, that's so awesome. Yeah, I think that's great that Dr. Coyle let you do that. I know there's a few other professors. I, I believe Dr. Humber at Florida, too, has extended the invitation to other SLPs uh, to come sit in on a class or, you know, even register her for, for her class, too. So, you know, I know a lot of people complain I didn't get a dysphagia course. I'm taking all these CEUs. I'm trying to piecemeal it together. And I, I actually have a friend in Georgia, actually, that just registered for a dysphagia class there, too. So, I mean, that that is an option, people. I mean... You know, I don't know that any of us really want to go back to college, but if that's what you have to do to get this material, if this is your profession, then then that's an, an incredible option that is available. Right, and I think that people, like at least in our area, they, um, I mean, Kate Cribble is right here. They could um, serve for yeah. Kate's class or, you know, or whatever, or go to a class or audit or whatever they want to do. Uh, so there are options for people like me if you want to know more and, you know, unfortunately, you know, the dilemma is that when we're here working in these kind of settings, we don't, um, we don't have the option to just do one disorder. So I have to split everything between dysphagia 
and other areas of interest. Say, like when I went to ASHA last year, I let everything. If I go to my state convention, I do the same thing. So, yeah. Well, you you wear many hats very well, Nana. <laughs> Thanks. Well, and and the whole point of this podcast is what really caught my eye is, you know, always on the dysphagia boards, there's this hot topic of waivers. And, you know, people always chime in with very polarizing opinions. And then, you know, I think maybe within the last year or two, I've really noticed you've been chiming in with actual, you know, research and what actual professors are writing about. And so I really wanted to kind of break that topic wide open here today and you know I just really admire your whole perspective on patient rights and being an advocate for a patient and I think it's so important to put the human element back into what we do you know we're so focused on the swallow the diet the food and what did anybody even ask the patient what they wanted so exactly exactly yeah so you know you do see all these posts but well I just use a a waiver those are the um posts that I always respond to, I guess. Yeah. And people don't really like all the time what I have to say about it. When I was preparing for my interview, more or less with you, you know, I looked at a number of different uh, documents and and a lot of these I had anyway, but I wanted to um, review them. But, you know, a waiver is really defined as a document that limits or releases a person or um, an institution or facility from liability. And that's really the definition of a waiver taken from Jennifer Horner, taken from her article. But there has to be three elements um, to a waiver. And one is that the patient received education. And uh, another is that there has to be a clause in it that protects the uh, institution from the liability. And three, the patient is actually waiving a right to sue. So he's giving up, he or she is giving up a legal right if something should happen. You know, you see a lot of the posts, and and I know I always post, well, it's coercion for one thing, because you're really saying to the patient, you don't agree with me, therefore you need to sign this piece of paper if you'd like to do something else. And secondly, these kind of waivers do not hold up in court. And Jennifer Horner explains that very nicely in her article. So that's one of the references on the list. And it explains that not the first thing, there's there's different elements to that, but one of the thing that, things that stuck out was that both parties do not have equal bargaining power when you ask a patient to sign because that patient does not have equal knowledge like you do uh, or that we do. So that is one reason why a court would be likely to um, not uphold that waiver at all. But she explains that nicely. So that would be a good thing for people to read. Yep. And I'll post those. Those references will be in the show notes so you can check those out. And interestingly, several years ago, this is in the 90s, I was working in Ohio at the time. I went to a conference in Columbus, Ohio, and Jennifer Horner was the speaker. And uh, you could sign up for, I think, two or three days. Maybe it was two. The first day was all on aphasia because that was her, that was her specialty then. And the second part was on ethics. And, you know, Jennifer Horner has a PhD in speech pathology, but she's also an attorney now. And so that makes her very interesting and very knowledgeable about this. And so when I went to um, 
that lecture on ethics, she said way back then in the 90s, you cannot abandon your patients because they don't want to drink those thick liquids. <laughs> you know, way back in the 90s. Right, right. It's been over 20 years. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know where people have been, you know, because, you know, the, the Patient Self-Determination Act actually came out in 1990 which said that the patient has a right to accept or refuse any treatment at all. I don't know why this question of patient rights is just now yeah. coming to the forefront of things. Yeah. Because it's always been there. Maybe it was just not noticed. I don't know. but So why do you think some facilities are still using them? Because they think that it will protect protect themselves from the liability if people don't eat what's recommended. Um, but they don't know the ethical concerns. They don't know the legal implications of that. And so if I was in that situation, I would be taking in this article to my administrator, and I would also be taking in um, the textbook recently published by Paula Leslie and Hannah Crawford, no relation to me, but it's the Concise Guide to Decision-Making and Ethics and Dysphagia. And there's a foreword in there by Jay Rosenbeck. And it's a very thin text that people can read, actually, in an evening, which has a lot of good information in it. And I think that it might be successful in changing an administrator's and a doctor's mind, maybe. You know, because when... The first thing is, too, or a thing to consider is that when speech pathologists recommend diets, they don't look at the broad perspective of the, the situation. They don't look at the patient's cultural values. They don't look at the um, religion of the patient. They don't look at the meaningful relationship of food to that person. And so all they are talking about is the swallowing and what they think is safe. And Jennifer Horner does say in, in our quest to provide what's right for each patient, it leads to overly restricting people and practicing in a defensive manner, which is not good for the patients. Right. And it also can, can uh, result in iatrogenic I think that's the word harm, you know, to recommend thick liquids and pureed diets that they don't want to eat. And, you know, and if you look at um, some of the articles, like Paula Leslie's article in Dysphagia Cafe that a lot of people subscribe to, uh, you know, she tells the story of Fred, who, who all of a sudden had this swallowing problem and how it influenced everything about his life because he loved baseball. What do people do when they go to the baseball games? They get a hot dog. Right. And he couldn't go to games. He couldn't do that because he had to be with the guys. And so I don't think that that speech pathologists always think about those kinds of issues and, and the perspective um, of the patients. You know, the question of capacity always comes up. Paula Leslie, she's, she says it's interesting that a person only questions, like a speech pathologist, only questions capacity when the patient doesn't agree. It's a very good point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. When they do agree, you know, they never question the capacity. And so, you know, Paula Leslie uh, in her book states that, um, you know, capacity fluctuates during the day. So 
So if you want to have a talk with a patient about diet or anything, really, that um, the time of the day that you choose to have this talk with that person is very important, or do you, or should you align that talk with when they last took their medications to make them at their best? Um, can you use pictures? Can you use diagrams? And then um, I came across an article by Michelle Bourgeois, who is like a guru in dementia. She has devoted her whole life to dementia. And I put that reference on there. It's called Voice My Choice. And she has, it's a tool to help people understand um, how to make choices and then help staff um, understand what the patient's choices are. So it facilitates the communication for people who have difficulty communicating. Now, that might not um, always work, but it's something that people can certainly try because that compounds the question of capacity even further when you have somebody, say, with aphasia. Right. So. But I think what's important to remember, too, is this isn't just us versus the patient. It's an entire team that should be in on this conversation. It's including the patient, including the patient's family, including, you know, a social worker that may know more about their cultural values. It's including the doctor who knows a lot more about their medical status than we probably do. So I think that's important to remember too. People just get caught up in, well, I have to make this recommendation. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's, you need to get input from a lot of different people and it really should be more of a team decision than you versus the patient. Right. That's it. You know, if you have, uh, if you're working with a really good team, that is very, uh, a very good point. In my situation, an outpatient, I'm not really working with much of a team because um, they don't often have a social worker, you know. Okay, yep. um, I, I can consult with a doctor, certainly, because I have to have some, some doctor had to refer them, whether it's in our practice or another practice. That's a very good point, because in, you know, a SNF setting or a hospital setting, there are other people that can sit down with everybody, you know, and, and the whole idea is to show informed consent. You know, I've heard it many times that in order to show informed consent, you have to document the entire dialogue you have with the patient or the family or whomever. So it's like, I said this, they said this, I said, you know, so you're documenting the dialogue and the person's choice and that shows informed consent. And you have to give options. You can't just say, this is the only option. You have to say, these are the options and one of those should be no treatment at all. Right. So, yeah, but you bring up a good point. If there are other people that to help with this process to meet with the patient with you to have a, uh, a meeting like that, that's certainly a good point. You know, I did used to talk to the palliative care doctors when I was in another setting Yeah, when it came to, to dysphagia. And, you know, the one thing, um, when I was in Jim Coyle's class, he actually had a guest speaker come in for um, palliative care. And she said at one point, this was a doctor, she said, at one point, she just stopped consulting the speech department because they wanted to make these people NPO. And she's going, you have to know that I am not consulting a speech pathologist to be told that patient should be NPO. I'm consulting to see, you know, how would the patient best be served eating? What can you do to make it at least, you know, to reduce risk? You can't put the risk to zero. Right. 
And she said, so until we came to that understanding, it wasn't until then that I started to consult the speech pathology staff again. So people should keep in mind when they do hospice or palliative care consults, those doctors do not want to hear NPO. Right. Well, and I think they want to, to hear as much of an objective professional opinion as we can give. You know, I, I know we constantly harp on you need an instrumental, but you really do. You know, people will send me messages. Well, what should I do with this patient? Well, first of all, I don't know. I'm not with your patient. But second of all, my response is always going to be, what did the MBS or the fees show? Because if the patient wants thin liquids, but they're consistently silently aspirating thin liquids, but they're not silently aspirating nectar, but they don't want the nectar, we just have to detail that these are the two outcomes. You know, patient wants thin, however, patient is silently aspirating thin. Patient did not silently aspirate nectar, however, patient's refusing nectar. So, you know, the doctors appreciate our profession a lot more when we lay out the actual facts instead of just saying, well, I'm not sure. The patient wants thin, but I think nectar might be the next choice, you know, the best choice. Right. What, what yeah. kind of proof do you have to back yourself up? Exactly. I mean, and there are cases where a person chooses not to participate in any type of study, whether it be fees. Yep. And then and you document that as well. Yep. Right. And then, you know, we still don't abandon people, you know. Right. Uh, right. We don't do that. Yeah, you brought up a great point too. You know, I, I I hate when people say, well, my patient would never tolerate the test. Well, did you ask them? Because even I know there's some, I, I've done fees on plenty of comfort care and hospice patients that they want to be comfortable, but they also don't want to be aspirating everything. Right. So it really is important to get their input. Would you like to do this test and see what's going on? And if they say, no, I don't care. The outcome doesn't matter. Then you document that appropriately. But if they do say, yeah, I'd really like to know what's going on. And, you know, the family would like to know maybe what's going to keep them the most comfortable because they're not coughing 24-7, then that's important too. So Exactly. I, I just really hate when people say the patient won't tolerate the test. Right. Well, did you ask? <laughs> yeah, ask them. And, and I mean, I can see them, and, and it depends how, you, how they're defining tolerate, too. What does that even mean? But certainly fees would be an, an advantageous kind of procedure in that situation because they might not be able to do the transport. That's true. Right. You know, to another, to a hospital or even to another floor of the hospital, that might be very true that they can't but fees comes to them so they might absolutely want to have that done you know i I, my first thought about fees was it's really invasive because you have to have that camera up your nose but it's not really invasive and you don't have to have radiation right have you ever had it done to you nanette no i haven't and i and i am not a fees provider because there were conflicts in our practice act right and we just got that revised it took um our eight years to get that changed right finally you know we have a different um licensure act so i think more people in pennsylvania will be doing fees now yeah absolutely definitely i mean we do need to have um objective data and to make our best recommendation but that doesn't mean the patient has to follow it by any you know any means shape or form or whatever the expression is they don't have to follow what we say. We're not right. in charge. I think a lot of the younger clinicians have a hard time understanding that we are not in charge. Right. I always just say, don't be the swallowing police. 
Exactly. You know, we're not in charge of that. What would you say if someone insists that their facility just tells them to just have the family sign the waiver? What would you tell a new grad that is under fire from their facility to just have the family sign the waiver? My advice would be much of what I have said here, and I would ask that clinician to take the information into administration and and talk to them and tell them what the legal uh, implications are and and the ethical uh, point of all of that, and that they could actually be sued for coercion when they make people do that. I remember actually somebody asked that question at one of the uh, seminars I was at when Paula Leslie was speaking, and she said, well, I guess if that's the policy in your facility, then I guess you'd have them sign it because that's what they do. But I would be educating those administrators. You know, I'd be marching in that office with with those books. And first-time clinicians aren't going to cause waves like that, I don't think. Oh, I did. But I would. (laughs) Did. <laughs> well, yeah, you have a different kind of personality, but I would too. I yeah. would just walk right in there and I would I would say, look, you know, or I might say, I can't do this. It compromises my own ethics, so I'm not doing it. Yeah. Or maybe you could say, well, if you want to do it, you could have somebody else take that waiver in there and have them sign it then. If you insist like the director of nursing or or whoever else agrees with the process. They're, they think they're going to risk their job. They've saved their ethics, you know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's a hard question because um, I've never really been in that situation. Well, actually, I was a waiver person in the 90s. I did use waivers in the 90s, you know? But the point is, as research changes, as you become more educated yourself, as you grow as a clinician, then you may, you start rethinking things. And then you make changes. Yeah, I just think it's it's important for everybody to know that they are not the swallowing police. No. <laughs> and it's just so important to give the patient options and put it back in their court. And, you know, our role really is almost, you know, with in skilled nursing, in these kind of situations, it's more of a consulting, a consultative role in that we are just brought in to present the options and say what we think is best, but it's up to them ultimately to choose what they want to do. Right, right. I mean, I remember doing a modified grand swallow on a person that uh, was just diagnosed with ALS. And the person came in, I did the swallow study, and the person aspirated on every single consistency there was, and, and nothing really changed that. And I said, well, you know, I showed the CD, whatever, I showed everything. They saw it while the study was going on as well. And, and I said, you're an adult. And this could be a possible consequence. I know that your neurologist asked you to consider a peg tube, and that's an option as well. I said, and you can see how everything's going down into your lungs. I said, but I'm not going to recommend to you that you should or shouldn't eat. I said, and I said, you're an adult, and you have to make those decisions. Here are the risks. Here are the benefits. He was actually like my appointment to me with GI because he was considering PEG. Uh, when I wrote the report and I sent it to neurology, I said I did not recommend that he didn't eat, even though he aspirated everything, because he can make his own decisions. He certainly knows what um, the risks and the benefits are of eating. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you compare it to someone that's undergoing treatment for cancer, you know, they have this 
this brain tumor that shows up and the oncologist presents the options. We can do chemo, we can do radiation, or the patient can just refuse and be comfortable and do whatever the heck they want. Right. You know, we have to think of it that way. It's just, we are there to present what is going on. Ed constantly says, says this, and I love to go back to it, but we have to take the emotion out of it, go back to the science and what we're actually seeing, what the physiology of the swallow is, and document that appropriately. And, and it's really not up to us to coerce them into one way or the other. Exactly. There was a really, uh, one of the references I sent uh, was is from May of 2017, and it's in the ASHA leader, and it's the one that says um, patient wishes before risk. Yes. And the author is Elizabeth Thompson Beckley. This article is really a nice article, and it quotes so many of um, the people that we all know about, like Mary Casper, Joe Murray, Jennifer Brush, his big name in dementia, Michelle Bourgeois, Jim Coyle. So there's a lot of people that contributed information to this article, and it's, you know, May 2017. There's so many um, good articles on this, and if people would just read them. <laughs> Is there anything easier to read than at the Asha Leader? I mean, in terms of, like, no. It's no. certainly not the scientific statistical right. journal, but it has really good information in it sometimes, you know, so. Absolutely, absolutely. It's free and it's in conversational language, so you have no excuse not to read it. Exactly. Yeah. There's no excuse not to read these things. And there's no excuse for a clinician not to rethink what they've been doing just because they've been doing it for a thousand years. Oh, my goodness, Nana. You know? <laughs> what a, that sounds like rocket science. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. It really is, because I could still be doing what I was doing, you know, when I graduated from college in 1971, when none of you were born. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and how do you think, if you were still treating how you were in 1971, how do you think your dysphagia patients, how do you think their outcomes would be? They'd all be dead. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have been doing anything. You know, I would, I would be completely clueless, and honestly... When I started in brain injury in 1982, dysphagia wasn't even a topic. But uh, somewhere along the line when I was in um, working in the brain injury is when it came to light. And that's when we started to do things. And we were very, very unsophisticated then. But now we know more. So we have to learn more and we have to do more. Oh, yeah. There's so much more out there. Like I said, I'm just getting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're living proof that we can teach an old dog new tricks. Absolutely. You know, I uh, here in my community with my closest uh, colleagues and friends, they call me like the queen of continuing ed because I'm always going to things. And I mean, I have 13 ACE awards, so that should say something that even though I've been working right. for 45 years, I still try to keep up. That's the truth. And, and do things differently. Our profession would be a heck of a lot further and we wouldn't be in a lot of these predicaments and pissing matches, for lack of a better word, if if people really kept up with the literature. And I, I know it's hard. I know it's tough. But like you even said, just reading the Asha Leader, there's no excuse not to read that. And, you know, the good thing is, is that somebody else does the research. Right. We don't even have to do that. Right, right. We just have to, like, look for reputable right. resources, you know. Right. We don't really have to. And if you're in this field, I think you have to do things at home that um, you don't necessarily want to. Everybody goes, well, I'm not doing that at home. 
not doing that at home. But you have to do reading at home. You have to do those kind of things. When I left the schools after 11 years on a Friday and started a brain injury on a Monday, it was a whole new world. I didn't have time to sit around and read during the day. I collected all the stuff I could on brain injury, and that's what I did to, to learn about it. Right. And, and the other thing is I was walking into a facility that had six other speech pathologists. They had neuropsychologists there. We were one of six places in the nation that treated brain injury. And so we kind of all learned together. And as things changed, we all changed. Well, and I think that's so important. You said that, and I know Ed said that in his episode also. You know, people ask constantly, well, I really love dysphagia. I really find it so interesting. I'm going to take this PRN job at at a sniff and hold on, pump the brakes. Um, I think it's just so important to make sure that you're at a facility that has support. Uh, you said there were six other speech pathologists. I think the place Ed was at had like 18 or some crazy number like that. But you have to have support when you're just starting out and, and you're only you're only going to frustrate yourself and you're only going to burn yourself out and you're only going to be doing a horrible job for your patients if you're just going in there blindly treating them without the proper support and mentorship right. ahead of time. All right. I didn't know anything about brain injury. And, you know, and then... This is even before I went there. This was in the, when I still worked in the schools. I had a little boy who had been hit by a car and had a brain injury. And he was in a special class. And he happened to be in the building that I serviced as a speech pathologist for that school. And um, probably most of you, um, if you don't work on brain injury, you don't know the name Mark Ilvesacker. But Mark Ilvesacker, uh, unfortunately, died about eight years ago. But he is like um, the father of traumatic brain injury he is so well respected and and the tbi world suffered a horrible loss when mark died but he had been this little boy's therapist and so i called him (laughs) i called him and he was so nice and giving me information and all that and you know now i have this little boy's brain injury i better find something else uh, you know i better find something out about brain injury if i'm going to treat him that's so important i (laughs) know I know somebody posted something earlier today about, I think they work with kids or they work with peds or something, but they were looking for advice about working with an older man with ALS. And we really have to know, I know, we really have to know our limitations. And we really cannot accept patients and be treating patients when we know nothing about the progression of their disease or exactly how to treat them. I know you do. I mean, people will fight back and say, well, I'm not going to turn away a patient. Well, you should. I mean, ethically speaking, if we're talking about ethics on this episode, you should not be treating someone that you don't have any experience with. You've got to study up. You've got to have a mentor to help you treat those types of situations. But if this is your first foray at it and you have no guidance whatsoever, then you really shouldn't be treating that person. No, you shouldn't. I just turned on a referral two weeks ago. It was on voice. I said, oh, I don't treat voice. Yeah. There you go. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, but I will tell you that that person needs to see an ENT, and here's two places where they might be able to go here in Erie, there you, you go. know, for voice, yeah. but but yeah. not me because I don't treat voice. Right. And um, and I have referred people down to Kate Cribble in Edinburgh. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. To, to take a look at too. Yeah, I mean, we have such a wide network, and everyone does specialize. And you know, even if you wear many hats. We all still have our specialties and we also know people that know more than us. So 
I don't think there's anything wrong in saying, I, I'm sorry, this isn't my specialty, but find, reach out to somebody that is and make an appropriate referral. Like you said, you know, maybe go to this clinic that will be able to treat you appropriately because we hate to talk dollars, but that really is the basis of everything we do. And if you're going to waste 10 visits of this patient's insurance dollars or Medicare or something, that's that's horrific. Right. Yeah. You know, if you're going to waste all these visits and they're not getting anywhere because you have no idea about the progression of the disease, that's a problem. Yep, that is a problem. And you have to understand the disease. You have to understand it. And when you've been working a long time, like, like I have, there might be, or, or even like for in the years that you've been working, you know, I think we have enough experience to draw from that if we get our first patient with some disease that we've never even heard of, we can research that, we can draw from our experience, we, we can put together something, you know, but it wouldn't be voice for me, but it would be other things, you know, like with communication, right. or swallowing, you know, and the, the other thing that uh, another piece of advice, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with swallowing, but if these younger people or anybody would get involved with their state association, if they have a strong association, that might open doors for them to meet different people and to learn a lot of new things. In, in 2006, I can remember I complained about our state convention format because it was so pediatric oriented. Yeah. I mean, everything was for school people. And I think that was 2006. And uh, the convention planner, she w- was going to give that job up to go, go back to school to become something else, reading or something. So she recommended that I take over as convention planner because I was the only one that said anything. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I did, and I did it for seven years. So I did it from 2006 to 2013, something like that. And so I changed the whole course of our state convention, and I immediately put in an adult track. And so I have met people from all areas of speech pathology by inviting them to be uh, speakers at our convention. That's great, yeah. And, yeah. and the thing of it is, is that I have really kept in touch and network with them, so they can't get rid of me. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's what's important. To, I mean, it's important for us professionally to network, but for our patients too, you know, if you, like we're just talking about, if you get a, a rare case and you know it's not something you could treat, you have this network of people now that, oh, you know, maybe Joey might know where I can send this person. Right. That's really the power of networking, too, is just getting Mm -hmm. these patients to the experts. It it is. And I mean, um, I've run into Michelle Bourgeois, for example, in a couple of different places. And I've seen her enough that she knows me now. And I email her sometimes and I'll say, oh, I have this patient. You know, I've been working all these years, but I still ask. I still ask questions to uh, people that are more informed than I am. And that's how you learn and she says anytime anytime and you know all of these people that I have emailed that I have met over the years they always answer they always write back yeah I was just about to ask you how many of them actually bit you and didn't respond none they all have written back none I think that's important nobody bites in this field in fact this is really funny but I was at ASHA in 2013 and I was going to buy do you know Audrey Holland I, I know of her. I don't know. She's an aphasia. She's like um, the queen of aphasia in the whole world, really. Yeah. And I was going to buy her book. 
It was on like counseling and communication disorders. And there I am at like one of those book uh, vendor things. And there's Audrey Holland sitting there with that book. She was signing books. And I couldn't believe it. So I go up and I said, uh, oh, hi. And she looked at me and she goes, I've been meaning to call you. (laughs) And I was with my friend and I go, what? You've been meaning to call me? She goes, yeah, I have a question for you. She goes, because I see your posts on SIG2. Oh, my goodness. And I ha- and seven years prior to that, she was one of the first people I invited to speak at Pisha. And she was in she was in Turkey or Thailand or something at the time. And she emailed me back. She goes, I'm out of the country. I'll get back to you when I get when I get uh, back in the in the state. So anyways, this is like seven years later. I said, oh, and she goes, because I, I like to look at your stuff on concussion because she goes, you know, I'm editor of speech and um, the seminars, you know, seminars and speech and language. I'm editor of that. We're having a whole edition on that. So I thought maybe you'd want to do something for that journal. Well, that's cool. That is cool. And when I came back from ASHA, there was a message on my phone. She goes, hi, this is Audrey Holland. <laughs> you know? And I was very serious about that. But we'll uh, call me back. And so I ended up um, publishing an article in um, in that journal in August for August of 2014, and I had never published an article before. So they um, they did give me um, a co-author that helped me, like she did a lot of the editing. But uh, it was so funny that I because they're my friends were making fun of me. They're going like Audrey Holland has a question for you. I don't I know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's wild. I mean, like I said, we all have our own little, our own little niches here. Yeah, I know it was it was crazy, and I got to see her too last uh, October when I went to Florida to an aphasia conference, and I got to meet Jackie Hinckley down there, and um, and it was great because Audrey was there. And she was a presenter. She must be in her eighties. She's in her eighties, and she's still learning. Yeah, and she's presenting and everything, and. But anyways, so, you know, I've had an interesting career and I've had, the thing of it is though, I've had a lot of support in my career. I've had a lot of support and that's what I think people have to do. They have to um, network. They have to network. You know, like I'm learning a lot just from um, talking to um, my newfound colleagues like you and Ed Weiss and, um, and, you know, Edgar Benson Clark and Brenda and Katie Kring. Yeah, you say you've had a lot of support, Nana, but you are also very willing to engage and reach out to and I think that's what's so important is you you're not hiding in a little hole not you know wanting to ask for help about anything so yeah I try to and I I I know that people have helped me let's just use Jim Coyle as an example because I, I do keep in touch with Jim Coyle and he you know gives me a lot of good advice and he helps me out and he is on a whole different level than I am but like with these new clinicians I try to help them like at the level that he helps me, you know what I mean? Because I'm at a different level than these new people. So I, I try to help them. I'm not at the top level, but I know enough that I think that I could be helpful to them at times. So Absolutely. We've all got to give back. Yeah, I try to do that because people have done it for me. Uh, so one last question. Uh, what research article or treatment technique or strategy has been a game changer for you in your practice i've been asking everybody this and been getting some really cool answers okay that that is like um that's kind of a hard question because um i don't know if it's any one thing like that i think that that i'm a person i've evolved 
you know, since since I started in 1971 in the school system. So I've evolved throughout the years. And, and I think I would have to say that it wasn't one article. It wasn't one technique. It wasn't any of that. Um, it was the people that I chose to align myself with and allow their influence to really shape what I do as a clinician. So I think that um, by going to all the continuing, certainly um, changing jobs from the school to the to traumatic brain injury was a whole life-changing thing for me and a career change. Um, but I, I can't say that it's been one technique. It's not been one person in particular. It's not been one article. It's just been this process of evolving over time, trying to learn from the best people possible. Oh, I think that's a great answer. I think that's why you're so good at wearing all of your many hats. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Nanette. That was that was good. Hope people learned what to do when they are faced with a ethical decision or what to do with a waiver in this type of situation now. Well, I, I hope it makes sense to um, people. Yeah, absolutely. We all have said we do have to advocate. We have to advocate, advocate for what our, our patients need. You know, like you read those posts, there I go off again. I don't have a test. I don't have materials. I don't have this. I don't have that. OT has a kitchen. PT has everything they could possibly want. It's been thousands and thousands of dollars. And they don't have like a test. <laughs> what? Where's that? You know, I don't know how that, yeah. that even happened yeah. in our field. Yeah, I did. A, I just did a podcast with Yvette about that about how to advocate for, you know, a product that you need or a therapy material. Yeah. I mean, and, and a lot of times it just comes down to asking. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I remember when I was a new young clinician and I asked my boss, I was like, can I get some new books? Like yeah. the books that have been here are like 20 years old. And oh, wow. he was like, oh yeah, you have like a $2,000 budget this year. If there's something more than you need, you know, let us know. We'll put it into the capital budget for next year. And I was like, well, why did nobody tell me this? You know, but it's like I learned when I asked. <laughs> yeah, like sometimes it is just a matter of ask, asking. And I do have my own personal library of books. And uh, because a lot of the textbooks I just buy on my own. But um, I don't buy tests on my own. They're four and $500. You know, I don't buy those, but I have bought a lot of textbooks. I've spent a lot of my own money on continuing ed. I do have a continuing ed budget here, but um, but I still usually exceed that, but, but I go anyway. Well, thank you, Teresa. Oh, thank you. This was so fun. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. You as well. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.